All right, so uh, let's take a little trip down memory lane this morning. Yeah, I know, you're worried. You shouldn't be, okay? I'm going way back. Yeah, all right? And it still fits well, by the way, okay? All right? Yeah, right. So, um, I have my senior yearbook here. Actually, this is Susan's senior yearbook, and no, you cannot look at it. I just wanted to show it to you, okay? My little letter's coming off here. So, and I, I, I did take some time to kind of go through it. In some ways, it's frightening, okay? It just is. And if you've pulled out a yearbook after a few years, you know that. I don't, do they even still make your, do you get, do you guys get one of these? Do you? Is it this nice? I mean, hardback and all that? Is it? Okay. Huh? Long? Oh, very small. Yeah, and no, I understand that. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So if you want to go back and hear the stories, I'll, I'll be glad to tell them to you. I probably won't do that this morning. Um, but, you know, the wrestling, the football, the, the track. Um, I don't remember. I think that's National Honor Society that's on there right now. Um, we were pretty good, by the way. We were pretty good. Over four years, our record was, if I counted right, was like 35-6-1. Yes, we had a tie my junior year. That was a bummer. Uh, I remember the game against Alexander Central. The winner of that was going to get to go on in the state playoffs. Some nose guard, I won't name him, made this amazing tackle when it was fourth and one on the goal line and we held them. Okay, it was awesome. I remember that like, yeah, it was awesome. Go Pioneers. Um, You know, I was just going to say that. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song. He ran into, I think the guy's name was Joe something. It was Joe something. Bruce was coming out of a bar, an old high school baseball player that was in his class was going in. They went back in, and a really cool song came from it, okay? Glory days. I think Bruce said, they will pass you by in the wink of a young girl's eye, is how quickly they go by. Those are the glory days. It's kind of fun to go back there, but for a church, and even for us as individual believers, that is no place to stay. If, if we go back there and stay there, um, then I think the passage today that Jesus gives us would cause us to go, that's not a good place to be, okay? Uh, Tom Rayner, who was president of uh, Lifeway for Southern Baptist, um, last, several years ago wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Dead Church. It was interesting. He wrote a blog post that would just blew up, and he wrote a book from that. Uh, the first reason for the death of a church is what he calls treating the past as a hero. That's the first thing that happens. I'll get rid of this. We don't need this during the sermon, okay? Um, although it's a really good coat. I've forgotten how. It's, it's pretty cool. So let's look back at that passage that Seraph read for us for just a minute. Sardis. These letters from these churches have come one after the other. And like the book of Hebrews, 
I don't, you may not remember, but this is a sermon. This is a letter that was read to these churches, okay? You can read through the book of Revelation. Depending on how fast you read, it might take you an hour, hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. But this, was, this letter was read, I believe, at these churches. And I heard a sermon this week uh, by H.B. Charles as he was, was kind of laying the groundwork for this, and it was just really cool the way he did it. He said, imagine that you're at the church at Sardis. And the messenger comes bringing to you this letter from John. And as this letter is being read, first this vision of Jesus comes there in, in chapter 1. And then you hear of these churches, and you know these churches. In fact, this church at Ephesus was probably the church that planted these other churches, they tell us. So you hear these words to these churches. Oh, I know somebody at the church at Ephesus. Hmm, that's a hard word for them. They've abandoned their first love. And then this little church at Smyrna. And all they're doing is undergoing tribulation and difficulty. And Jesus encourages them to be faithful. So there's the folks in Sardis listening to this. And then the church of Pergamum tells that, wait a minute, I have this against you. These teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. So they hear that. And then the church at Thyatira. And somehow or other, they, they're able to make this connection about this false prophetess named Jezebel. And so they're listening to this, and then here comes into the church in Sardis. And H.B. Charles says, they must have set up. Oh, yeah, he's got something to say to us. And he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Can you imagine that? Someone walk in here, in, into Westwood, and say, I see all that you're doing. I hear your songs. I see your activities. You have a reputation in the community. But you're dead. And this letter, this, this, this word to us from Jesus this morning, it's not like any of the other letters. It's the starkest, scariest so far. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of in your face. There's no commendation. There's no real good word for them. There's, there's a remnant, it seems, but this, something has happened in this church, and it seems that the folks in the church are not even aware of it. So there's, there's three things. We're not going to take a lot of time to talk about Sardis, the city itself, but there were three things that in my studies kind of picked up on about the city itself. It was known for its, the word is in, in the Greek Acropolis, but it was its fortifications. It was known for its defenses, okay? It seems that Sardis was built surrounded by three sides by 800-foot natural stone cliffs that were really almost unassailable, they thought. And so there was this great sense of security in Sardis. They were very comfortable there. They're not concerned about what was going on. Herodotus, who is called the father of ancient history, wrote this around 400, 425 B.C. He talked about the city being known for its prosperity and peace, and he said this, It was not the peace through battle, but the peace of a man whose dreams are dead, whose mind is asleep. It was the peace of lethargy and evasion. So they were at peace, but they were at peace because they were asleep, Herodotus says. There was no seriousness, no vigilance. And so when the city did fall and it fell twice, it was because enemies climbed up those walls that no one thought could be climbed up and came in over the back while the guards were asleep and the city fell. 
but it was known for its defenses. It was also known for its temple of Artemis. Now, remember, in Ephesus, there was this seventh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this amazing temple, and the ruins of it are still there. They had one of those in Sardis. It was as big as the one that's in Ephesus, but they never finished it. The temple was started, but it was incomplete. And so there's this incomplete temple there. It was known for that. And then thirdly, it was known for its necropolis. Necros means dead. It was known for its huge cemetery. And it was said, it was called the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills, and there were these burial mounds that were visible, they tell us, for miles as you, as you made your way up there. So it was known for its defenses, for its incomplete temple, and for its graveyard. And this worked its way into the church, it seems, in Sardis. They had a false sense of security. Nothing's going to happen to us. They had evidently, as we'll see from Jesus' words, this tendency to start things and not finish them. And they had this graveyard, this place of death. And so this word from Jesus to the church at Sardis is one that... Lots of times, churches like us, I think any church would say, oh, that's not us. But we need to hear it because it was written to us. We need to, we need to take heed to what Jesus says to this church. Now, in my mind all week, I've been thinking about, wait a minute, Jesus told Peter, Peter, you are the rock. And upon this testimony that Peter said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said that his church is indestructible. That's church with, the way I understand it, a capital C. His universal church, his ecclesia, those people that are called out by faith into Christ. His church, and that's the whole picture in the book of Revelation, right? The church comes out on the right side. The church will not be defeated. And Andy Davis said this, and I think it's very important for us to hear it. The most powerful tool in the hands of Almighty God for the building of the church of Jesus Christ, that's church with capital C, is a healthy local church, small c. A healthy church that is led biblically by godly elders, passionate for the glory of God, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel with courage in its community, discipling one another toward holiness and Christ-likeness. That is a fearsome weapon in the hand of God against the spiritual forces of evil. Satan knows this, so he is fighting the battle all around the world at the local church level. So in our country, in our community, And around the world, if you've traveled, you know this to be the case. We drive by dead churches every day. We drive by churches who have a sign, they have a steeple, they have activities, they have a newsletter, they have a website. But there may not be a spiritual heartbeat. There's no pulsing of the Holy Spirit in the life of many congregations They're living in the past. If you don't believe it, walk in. I mean, there's walls lined with pictures. There's memorial plaques on every piece of furniture and every window. Not that that in itself is bad, but that in itself points people backwards lots of times. And it's just difficult sometimes to move forward when we're anchored in the past to that extent. Memories of yesterday's accomplishments... 
and being thankful for the work of people who came along in the past, all of those are are well and good and healthy. But if that is where we dwell and that is where we stay and that is all we talk about and that is what we long for, oh, if we could just go back to those days, then there's something deeply wrong. And when that, even being thankful for the past, if it's not matched by a sense of spiritual vitality and a yearning for God to continue to do His work, then that's pictures that things are not what they should be. So this revelation of Jesus is the first thing we see here. He is the, he is the one with Holy Spirit insight and absolute sovereign control. I believe that's what verse 1 says. The angel of the church at Sardis, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars. Jesus identifies himself as the one who has seven spirits of God. Now this is not seven Holy Spirits. As we saw in chapter 1, and we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, numbers are important. The number 7 stands for fulfillment. It stands for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He has that spiritual insight, that spiritual power. That, and I believe it comes from passages like in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, when we were looking back at the spirit that was on the servant of God, Isaiah 11 says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's seven characteristics there of this servant. Okay? He, is, he, he has the spirit of the Lord, that the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, thirdly, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, fifth, spirit of knowledge, spirit of fill of the Lord. Seven, seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has an absolute Holy Spirit insight. And he also has this sovereignty over these seven preachers or angels, the seven stars. I'm not real sure what that is, as with a whole lot of what's going on in the book of Revelation now and later, I don't know. Okay, I don't know exactly what that means, and a whole lot of other people don't seem to know. But whoever, whether it's the preachers who have spiritual oversight there, whether it's angelic beings, whatever it is, Jesus is holding them. That's what matters. He has them, okay? He's the one who holds them, he's the one who knows them, and he's the one who can fix them. So there's this picture. But don't skip over those words that are at the beginning of that quote, the words of him. You've heard it read from Isaiah. You've heard it read by Sarah from Revelation. Every word in this book is the word of him. Jesus said in John 5, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. Peter said, you have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? God spoke through Moses in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Take heart to all the words by which I am warning you. They are no empty word for you. They are your life. Jesus spoke and Lazarus came out. I think he may have yelled, Lazarus! But I think he kneeled down beside the bed of that little girl in Mark and whispered, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, rise up. And when Jesus speaks, there's potential for life there. Okay? This is the one speaking into this situation. That's the revelation. Has full Holy Spirit insight and full authority. He's the only one who can fix it. And there's a rebuke. Look at the rest of verse 1. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus says, I know. 
I know your busyness. I know your activities. I know that you have literally the word says a name you have. I know your reputation or you have a name. Hang on to that thought. We're going to see in a minute that this idea of a name is important throughout this letter, throughout this passage right here. People on the inside have an opinion of themselves. People on the outside have an opinion of this church. It's a relatively good opinion. Jesus seems to intimate here. I know your reputation. I know what people see, but I want you to know what I see. You have this reputation, but the reality is not the same. Reputation versus reality. That's the theme in this letter. It's true for us personally. It's true for us as a church. Reputation versus reality. And Jesus says, I know. I know. Remember what the prophet said in the Old Testament when it came time to choose a king? And the prophet was told, don't look at the outward appearance. David was the runt of the litter. He wasn't the one you would expect to be picked. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And here's Jesus looking at the heart of this church, and he says, You have a reputation, but I see nothing but death. It's the same thing we see in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus was looking at the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees of his day, and he says, You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside you appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Outwardly you appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy, he says, and lawlessness. Hypocrisy is that that word in the Greek language for an actor. They're wearing a mask. Jesus said, you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. He can see that when no one else does. He sees it in us individually, and he sees it in a church corporately. And so these folks are pretending to be something that they aren't. They're a smashing success in the eyes of the world. And Jesus sees them as dead. It is the spirit that gives life. Tom Rainer, same author, same writer, estimates this is i read this yesterday just to see if there was any update in it or whatever his estimates range from anywhere to 5000 to 10000 churches that will close in the united states within the next year some say that's really high i've seen numbers that you know 1000 2000 rainer says anywhere from 5 to 10000 churches will close the north american mission board our North American Mission Agency plants new churches, and their estimates are that they will plant a thousand new churches this year in North America. We're not keeping pace, are we? And some will blame a pandemic for some of these church closings. People couldn't come, they didn't give, you know, things things just happen. Some might blame cultural issues political issues, things like that. I believe those external issues, if we understand what's going on here and if we really understand what's going on in our walk with Christ and what it means to be sanctified and growing with Him, crises that come into the life of people don't create issues in their hearts. It exposes what's already there. The pandemic might close a church, but it'll be because... There was no life in there to begin with. All right? So political cultures and context and social issues, they don't cause churches to close. They reveal the cancer that's on the inside already. And they can't survive in that climate. So there's spiritual lifelessness in this church. 
that Jesus sees, and he rebukes them for it. But praise God, church, as hard as this letter is, what comes next is his requirement for them, and it's grace. It's just covered with grace. Understand this. Jesus is the only one who can walk into a morgue and slide out the drawer and speak to that corpse and offer options. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can stare into the face of that dead body and see something beyond burial. And that's true for you today individually, and it's true for any church. You may feel like that's, that's where I'm at today. Just cold and lifeless. Praise God. The one who spoke to Lazarus and the one who spoke to that dead little girl is the one who came out of the grave himself and speaks life today. And so he can speak to this corpse. And, and a lot of commentators have seen this and said, no, these were symptoms of, 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 of a terminal illness in the life of the church. No, no, I believe Sardis was dead. Jesus said so. You're dead. And he says first, wake up. Then he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Thirdly, he says, remember what you received and heard and then keep it and repent. Four things here that he lays out that are are this requirement for this church. Wake up. And in this case, the city had fallen because it was asleep. They climbed up the back wall. And because they were asleep, they had fallen and been defeated. And Jesus says that same thing is true in your church. The enemy is sneaking in. Yesterday's victories mean nothing in today's battles. Wake up. Wake up. Be watchful, he says. Even there is just this invitation to life. Ephesians 2, we'll read it in just a minute, talks about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, praise God, speaks life into that and gives us the opportunity to come alive. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains. And again, this image of this massive temple that had been started there and set unfinished. There had been a start. There had been some good works. They were kind of like the Ephesians. There's a lot of similarities between Sardis and Ephesus in the letters there. And in Ephesus, they were told to remember those good those works and go back. Here in Sardis, it seems that they had been in place, but they had been incomplete. And you know what incomplete obedience is? It's disobedience. It's disobedience. And so, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Your works are not complete, Jesus says. One quote I read this week said, You cannot find life in being careful about being disobedient. Being careful in disobedience doesn't mean, okay, I'll take a little step into that. I just won't jump over. No, there's no life in that. And, there's no, and, and partial obedience is, is not what Jesus is looking for here. He says, remember what you have received and heard. And here's where my mind went with that. Here's where, here's where I, went. I went back to the book of Acts in chapter 2. I went back to what we sang about this morning where the Spirit of God fell and the church was born. 
And what was it that that church was focused on, intentional about doing in the beginning? In Acts 2, verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and about, and about 3,000 souls were added that day. And then it goes on in the rest of the passage to talk about what this early church did. They were focused. They were together, it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word. They devoted themselves to that. Together they devoted themselves, it says, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to praying together corporately. They devoted themselves to witnessing, and they experienced the Holy Spirit's power in and through their church in massive ways. They devoted themselves to sacrificially giving to the poor around them and seeing to the needs of the community around them. They were concerned about the causes of justice. Together they saw God adding to their church. The church was growing. Together they saw this. And it tells us later on in the book of Acts that in the church at Ephesus, the church that Paul planted, through that church, it says in Acts 19, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord And continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of God was spread from Jerusalem out into cities like Ephesus and then out into cities like Sardis. And so what Jesus is saying, remember the gospel. Remember that you were alienated from me apart from Christ. Remember that I came and gave myself so you could have life. Remember who you are in me. Remember that I rose from the dead and that life is yours now. And you don't have to be afraid of these things. He says, keep it, fourthly, keep it and repent. Make a U-turn. Go back. Repenting is a change of mind. We've talked about this. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of attitude that leads to a change in behavior. A U-turn is turning from one thing and turning to something else. We talked about it in our life group this week. Repentance is not just stopping. It's not just, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that. No, repentance is turning toward Jesus, walking with Him, running to Him, staying with Him. And here's the cool thing about verses 2 and 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains. I found your work incomplete. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. The command of God in the Bible is the enablement of God. Right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, Lazarus, come forth if you can figure out a way. No, his word is life. His word is the power to do these things. And so his Holy Spirit enables the church to do the very things that Jesus is speaking of. That's the requirement. Wake up, refocus, remember, and repent. This is why... It seems that we say it over and over, Jason, JT, Jim, we all say it over. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly, daily, constantly. This is the good news of the gospel. This is, this is, this is what we're called to, repentance. And it's a gift. It's a gift. Martin Luther, his first of his... Theses that he nailed there to the door of the church in Wittenberg says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The whole of the Christian life is repentance. Turning to Jesus is not something that we do one time when we were 12 and walked down the aisle and took Pastor Gerald's hand. Repentance is not a one-time event. 
In the life of a true believer, repentance is consistent and constant. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's the life of a believer. And so when there is no conviction of sin, no awareness of the need to seek forgiveness and to repent and turn, we ought to be in a drawer in a morgue. Because that's, those are the, that's the picture of life. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just, let's just remind ourselves. We, we, we stopped here back in the day. B.C. Yeah, some of you are awake. Good job. Good job. Yep. We, we see this amazing picture in, in Ephesus, in, in Ephesians, of how Jesus is... Uh, I've got too many paper clips in my Bible here. Hang on. Um, this glory of Christ that's in Ephesians chapter 1 and, and, and in Ephesians chapter 2, he ends the passage prior to that um, by just having raised him from the dead, it says in verse 20, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, talking about Jesus. In chapter 2 it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now working the sons of disobedience. And look at verse 3, Among whom all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the, that's the bad news of the gospel. But it gets worse. It gets worse. You can't do anything about it. You cannot pull out your own morgue drawer and speak into your own dead face and heart and speak life into yourself. Somebody else has to do that. <laughs> Somebody else. But God, glad you asked. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which it, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the good news of the gospel that we should begin every day with. Every, every day we preach that to ourselves. It was bad for me. I was a sinner and dead. And it was worse than that. I couldn't do anything about it. But praise God, He is rich in mercy. And He spoke life into that dead corpse. And He gave me a new heart. The old is gone and all things have become new. Do you know that today? Is that the reality of your life? Oh, I invite you. That's, Jesus comes speaking to this dead church, but He may be speaking to a dead soul here. And He's the only one that can. Now, He uses the foolishness of preaching. He uses the witness of a faithful gospel, witness of another brother or sister in Christ. But it is his word that brings life, not, not mine. And so we were sinners, and we couldn't do anything about it. And God sent Jesus, and he offers new life. And today could be that. That's, the, that's, the, that's what Jesus, go back to that, he says. Remember that. Do the first work of the gospel, praying together, worshiping together, 
fellowshipping together, serving together, meeting the needs of the community around you. This is, this is what he says. And then this final word here, the one that is so frightening, repent or else. Repent or else. There is grace here, but there is judgment for those who spurn that grace. Repent, he says. If not, I will come. And I'm going to come like a thief in the night, he says. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. This is not, by the way, the second coming. Jesus is not talking about his imminent return. That, that's coming later. He's talking about coming in judgment to this church at a time when they don't know it. They're not, you don't know when it's going to be. But I am coming. And I'm going to come at an hour you don't expect me. And I'm going to come in a way that you don't expect me. And just like you never thought anybody would climb up that 800-foot wall and come over, I'm going to come that way. And you better be ready. And so there's this striking image, this, this powerful image. It's like Jesus said before, I'm going to come at you. I'm going to fight you, he said. That, that, that's not the words we want to hear. That, that's not encouraging, and nor should it be. Repent or else. And then there's this, there's this remnant There's this reassurance. Look at what it says. Jesus is saying, stay faithful to me and I will dress you in my righteousness. I will hold you for eternity and I will claim you as my own. I believe that's how you could summarize what he says there. Yet you still have a few in verse 4. A few names. There's that word again. A few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a few in there with a heartbeat. There's a few there. Our church, our elders, just just last time we met, made a decision to begin to partner with a group called the Pillar Network. And I encourage you to just pull that up. We can post that um, just so you know something about the Pillar Network. Nate Aiken, who is Dr. Aiken's son, one of his sons, um, is one of the officers in the Pillar Network. And the Pillar Network comes along beside dying churches and helps and just, and just helps bring new life into these churches. And they plant churches as well. And, and we've, we've made that decision as a church to partner with them. You'll hear more about that at our next church meeting. But, um, so, and and there's, there's a landscape just dotted with little churches and big churches who still have some life in them. Some life in them. They, they don't look like much. And they're struggling in a lot of ways. And Jesus here speaks to that faithful remnant inside this church. Now, there's issues, no doubt. There's compromise. There's been shortcuts. There's been places where it seems things have not gone well. But there's still still in the life of this church a few who are there. And he says, you have not soiled your garments. You have not stained your garments. So there's there's this picture here, it seems, of... Like other churches where there's been compromise, where there's been immorality, where they've sought to get along in an unhealthy way. 
so that they've soiled their garments. He said, there's, there's a few here who are, who are still being faithful. And we're not told exactly what happened. We're not sure what exactly happened. Maybe it was a matter just of persecution, okay? Maybe in Sardis it was just really hard to stand up to the culture. But the problem with that one, one commentator put it this way, why would Satan persecute a dead church? He has no reason to. Dead churches have it easy when it comes to spiritual warfare because our enemy is not going to worry about a dead church. It's the churches that are alive he's concerned about. So I'm not sure it was persecution. Perhaps it was the pull of the culture and not just the pagan culture here. Archaeologists have uncovered what was the largest synagogue in that part of Asia in Sardis. There was a huge Jewish community there. And perhaps the pull of these Christians was not so much to the pagan gods and goddesses and those things. Maybe it was to that Jewish religious community who said some of the worst things in the world against this Jesus fellow. This one who Christians hold as God, as Messiah, as the promised one. Jews spurned him. And so because it was such a large Jewish community and so influential and prosperous and, you know, Maybe these Christians were tempted just to not say the name of Jesus as much as they might should. They talk about God all day long. The man upstairs is culturally acceptable. But to name the name that is the name above every other name, which is the name of Jesus, that's different. And maybe they were just... Intimidated by that. Perhaps it was the comfort of the city. You know what else archaeologists uncovered in Sardis? Besides that large synagogue? A huge gymnasium and bath. Maybe it was just the comfort. Maybe it was just the affluence of the city that had this impact. And maybe it was a combination of all of these. But there were still a few names hanging on to holiness. Okay, They were staying faithful. And the one who conquers... Jesus makes a promise to them. The one who conquers, who stays in the fight, who doesn't quit, is going to walk with me clothed in righteousness, he says. And this is this righteousness, this white, is a picture of purity. In Revelation 7, it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Just like a dead person can't speak life into their own lives, so we can't clothe ourselves in our own righteousness. Jesus has to give us that outfit. And he does. It's his righteousness. To the one who conquers and stays in the fight, who doesn't quit, they'll walk with Christ clothed in righteousness. Then he says the one who conquers and stays in the fight and doesn't quit is secure for all of eternity. Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before my angels. Do you get that picture? Jesus is saying, this is Gerald. This is Gary. This is Susan. This is Kelly. He's with me. And he's, and he's almost like, I'm speaking, John said, Jesus says, I'm going to speak your name to my Father and to the angels. All of heaven, for a minute, will have that attention focused there. It's an, it's an amazing picture. I will never blot. Now, five times in Revelation, we're going to see this word, the book of life. And it is the record of the names of the believers, sovereignly written by God, before the foundation of the earth. And this is not a threat. It is a promise. This is not a threat. Jesus is not saying, if your name is in that book of life, I might change my mind and take it out. 
No. Because all of Scripture shows us that that's not possible. We don't lose what was given to us by the work of Christ. It's not taken away. This is a promise. And these names are significant. Greg Beale says in his commentary, it is significant that the word name or names appears four times in this portion. And this is Jesus coming to inspect the reality of a person's name. Remember, in the Old Testament, your name meant something. It it carried meaning. And so Jesus is saying this name is critical. It represents the character of the person. And Jesus says, I'm giving you that name. And in the early days of the church, they wanted a good name, a good reputation. Jesus said, the reality of that has to match that. And that reality comes in me, through me. And so here's these believers, and Jesus is calling them by name and pointing them out to the Father and to the angels. And finally, he says, I I will confess your name. I'm going to give you a name, and I'm going to speak that name to my Father and to the angels. And, I mean, all of us like to hear our names, right? I mean, we do, unless we're being called out. But, I mean, we like to hear our name announced. But you know what? Our reputation in the community, what other people think, yeah, it bears some, it bears, we need to be concerned about that to some degree. But what really matters is what Jesus sees and says about our hearts. That's, That's what we see here. And Jesus says, I'm going to acknowledge you. Now remember in Matthew 10, he says, someone, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And then The other part of that, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. So listen, church, please listen. If you're an unbeliever today, if you're a member of this church and have been for a long time, listen to what the Spirit says to us. Listen to what he's saying. Let's just think for just a second as we finish up about Tom Rainer in that autopsy of a dead church listed several Causes of death, okay? You know, you know what an autopsy is, right? I don't have to get into that. But slide out that drawer and set that body up on that slab, and then we begin to do some work and see what's on the inside. And Rainer, as he was looking at churches, as I've already said, said the first cause of death is treating the past as a hero. And he says, plaques on the walls, memorials throughout, more talk about the past than the present or the future. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, but one thing I do, forgetting forgetting what is behind, I strain toward what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. First cause of death is treating the past as a hero and wanting to live in it. One of the other causes of death is treating the preaching of the word as optional. And I don't mean standing up and telling stories. In, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever talks about the importance of expositional preaching. And it's the first mark in the life of a healthy church. It doesn't matter who's up here doing it. Okay? That's not the point. The point is, it's what they are doing. And if they are taking the Word of God and taking it book at a time, passage at a time, verse at a time, explaining its meaning and its application and what it means then to them and what it means now to us, this commitment to hearing the Word of God is the first mark and it is the most important because if that's not right, nothing else will be. 
Thirdly, Rainer talks about a church not being willing to meet the needs of its present community. Many of these churches that are dying or dead are dead because the community around them changed and they didn't. I mean, praise God for, for the vision you know, that, was, that was in our community a few years ago for a little church over there on the other side of town that's now East Rock. That community changed, but the church didn't, and so the church died. It just died out. But coming in and revitalizing a church... What a gift that is. What an opportunity that is. And churches that refuse to meet the needs of the people around them will die as they should. They're they're not serving any purpose. Fourthly, Rainer talks about dismissing the responsibilities of accountability and church discipline. And and we see that as optional. That's, That's been the point all the way through these letters, right? Compromise. The church's there was compromise and, and, and immorality, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. And Jesus called it out. And if a church is not willing to be faithful to the Word in the lives of each other in the area of accountability and church discipline, Jesus says that's not a good sign. Another thing Rainer talks about is allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. We need to just keep our focus there. And, and finally, the one I really... Regular corporate prayer. Rainer says that is, that's a picture that's, that's one of the symptoms. That's one of the causes of death is the lack of regular corporate prayer. I don't know what you do in your life groups, but let's be sure to pray together. I know it's hard sometimes. I know nobody seems to want to participate sometimes. I know it seems like, okay, John, you start and I'll finish and there's nothing in between. I know it's hard, but don't stop praying together. In your Sunday school classes, in your gatherings, praying together. And don't lose focus of disciple making, raising up belief. We are one generation away from being dead, church. That's, we're just one generation away. And we know where culture's going, don't we? We understand that. So it's up to us to be raising up a generation of people who love Jesus and love His Word and love His truth and are ready to live it out. There's others here, but I'm not going to take the time to do those. This is, this is the autopsy of the church in Smyrna. Sardis, rather. God, help us. Help us to be vigilant, to be faithful. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and the heartbeat that's in us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to gather and hear it. And I pray, Lord, for you to bring fruit from that word in each of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that our names are yours if we are in Christ. And, Father, again, I pray for for whoever might be here. Maybe it's a young person, Lord. Maybe it's a student. Maybe Maybe it's a senior saint, Lord, that looks back and recognizes, wait a minute. I'm just not sure that life is there. Father, the bad news is we've sinned. The worst news is we can't do anything about it. But God, the good news of the gospel is that you sent your son. That whoever would believe in him would have life. And have it eternal. So Father, I pray for that 
that work of your Holy Spirit to bring new life into the heart of someone today. And I pray for us as your church, Lord, to be revived. I pray for revival, Lord. I pray for repentance of our sin. I pray for repentance of my sin. God, I pray for us to look into the mirror of your word and that your Holy Spirit would turn the light on so that we can see it and turn from it. And Father, we thank you that your word is life. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.